Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim. How are you? Oh, I'm doing groovy. We've got a monumentous American phenomenon coming up, right? Monumentous. Indeed. Indeed. And I'm talking about the Super Bowl. So should we talk about the tradition of food and sporting events, especially related to the Super Bowl? I think that sounds like a really great idea. Cool. So it seems prudent to explain what the Super Bowl is, and it's literally the annual championship games for the National Football League, or NFL. And this came about as a result of a merger between the uh, National Football League and its then-rival, the American Football League. The idea was that one team from each league would compete in an annual AFL-NFL World Championship game. I totally have issues, by the way, for this being called a World Championship because Mm -hmm. it's really only teams from the U.S., But, you know, Europe's got Eurovision and we're not allowed to compete in that. So I figure, I guess it's all fair in love and war. (laughs) And sports. And sports. (laughs) Culturally speaking, it's actually the second largest day for food consumption in the United States after Thanksgiving, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And since the very first game in 1967, Super Bowl parties and gatherings have been quite the thing. The Los Angeles Times documented the very first Super Bowl party for the very first Super Bowl, which happened in Los Angeles on January 15th, 1967. And the game was the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Green Bay Packers, where a PepsiCo executive and his wife flew two planes full of their closest, dearest friends to Mexico, and then later flew back to Los Angeles to dine in a popular restaurant. So ever since then, people have been gathering together to watch sports and eat food both inside and outside their homes. I had no idea that it was second after Thanksgiving, but it totally makes sense. So I thought in honor of Super Bowl that I would talk about one of America's favorite pastimes that involves sports, cars, and good eats, tailgating. Yes. Yes. I loved this definition of the confluence of sporting events and mobile eating from the American Heritage article, Tailgating, The History. The role of managed conflict in bringing people together socially and the basic American approach to a fully mobile vehicle-based cuisine. So where did the phenomenon of the mobile cocktail party where all are welcome come from? Please tell me. I will tell you. According to the American Heritage article, also several other articles that I found when I was researching tailgating, a history... There were two major events that would spawn the tradition. So, come with me Mm. to Manassas Junction, Virginia. The date is July 21st, 1861. And if you paid attention in history class, 
you're likely to remember that this was the first Battle of Bull Run, which was the first major land battle of the American Civil War. Union supporters traveled from Washington, D.C., arriving at the battle with baskets of food and opera glasses in hand. Women arrived in carts loaded with pies and other edibles, and they settled themselves on the hillsides, spread out their blankets, and anxiously awaited for the action to start. There were even cheers of Go Big Blue from the crowd. Unfortunately, the Union supporters did not realize the win that they had believed would make this war easily won. Chaos ensued as the Union troops literally ran through the supporters. Fortunately, no spectators were harmed. This probably wasn't the most appropriate of spectator events. One would think perhaps not a war. But given the similarities between sporting events and wars, I'm also not terribly surprised. The second event is much happier than the first event, and it finds us in Texas on a ranch about five years later. Charles Goodnight was a rancher and an entrepreneur. He had this issue of feeding cowboys that were in the middle of nowhere when they were doing cattle drives. So he figured that he would outfit a U.S. Army Studebaker wagon with a kitchen which turned into what we now know as the chuck wagon. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. When you think about the chuck wagon, it's not very different from what we equip our tailgating pickups and station Mm -hmm. wagons with now. Four years later, Princeton and Rutgers played at the college field, and the game was deemed a fine game and a fine party. With the advent of the automobile, specifically the station wagon, this really provided the foundation of tailgating. Gas grills became a lot smaller and coolers had wheels on them. So it really provided these elements of a mobile kitchen that could be brought Mm. to the games. Now we have food trucks and satellite dishes set up outside the stadiums. One survey found that 30% of the tailgaters never actually even set foot inside the stadium. Wow. (laughs) Right? So it seems like what really draws people, and this actually goes back to the Battle of Bull Run, what drew those people together was friends and this party atmosphere and this game or conflict where you could choose a side, probably in that order. Notre Dame professors and anthropologists John Sherry and Tanya Bradford actually took two years to study the American tailgating phenomenon. They compared it to the Greek tradition of Vestivals, which is a fall harvest celebration named for the goddess of the hearth, Vesta, which I find very interesting because it goes back to that place where we like to gather Mm -hmm. around, you know, food Mm -hmm. and the hearth. Mm -hmm. Sherry actually told the New York Times that the football season starts at the end of the summer, goes through the fall, and ends on winter's doorstep. Tailgating is an autumnal rite that celebrates abundance in the face of austerity which I think that we can all understand, especially where the Super Bowl falls. Absolutely. You know, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because the Mm -hmm. Super Bowl does have this sort of moment in our cultural lives of being sort of marking the end of winter. You know, we've talked a lot in other episodes at other times about all the rites and, and ceremonies and things that we do as humans to mark the end of the year. And the Super Bowl really does seem to be one of them. In 1998, 
Lawrence Wenner, a San Francisco University professor of communications who has written extensively about the Super Bowl, expressed the sentiment that evolving technology in the size of televisions, plus the marketing efforts of food retailers and producers, have really allowed Super Bowl Sunday to develop as a quasi-national holiday. He said, and I quote, there's a big void in the first part of the year when there are no festive holidays. Super Bowl Sunday has become what you might call a cultural high holiday. And mm. I guess it's the last hurrah of the holiday season. And there was something I noted too about where Super Bowl falls, which is now since I think 1994, the first Sunday of February. And another major event that usually starts in February and that's Lent. So although fasting is an integral part of many religions practiced within the United States, I did think it was notable that Lent, which is a 40-day period in which Christians fast and or abstain from certain foods, happens just two weeks after Super Bowl Sunday. So I'm not saying that people that are honoring Lent fast because they ate too many chicken wings <laughs> on Super Bowl Sunday, but Maybe. Super Bowl Sunday does seem to represent a modern kind of like non-secular last hurrah of indulgence before we, we prepare for the rigors of that spring and summer bring into our lives. So this is sort of like, it feels like it does follow this kind of like harvest ritual. Fans often bring to the buffet table food items that represent their teams and their origins like cheese platters for the Green Bay Packers, whose fans are known as cheeseheads, or... Kansas City style ribs for the Kansas City Chiefs. But what's notable, I think, is that Super Bowl food tends to overwhelmingly fall into the high fat, high sodium side of nutrition because, well, snacks and finger foods are easier to eat in front of the TV. They're also easier to eat if you're standing or sitting in a lawn chair at a tailgate party. You were talking potato chips, elaborate dips, the sour cream and the, oh, the guacamole. Seven layer dip. Seven layered bean dip. I mean, all these things that people tend to pull out specifically for Super Bowl. Chicken wings, pizza, chili, deviled eggs. We're not looking at any kind of meal that requires fine china linens and like the traditional dining room table. And I think that's an interesting juxtaposition as like a finale to the holiday season where we tend to have these very elaborate celebratory meals for Hanukkah. Christmas, Kwanzaa, New Year's Day, New Year's Eve. Right. All the feasting you could possibly want, but in the most common vernacular that you can imagine. The thing that strikes me about this is that it goes back to that bringing friends together. You may not necessarily watch the game, but being together mm -hmm. and communing together that doesn't require that fine dining feeling. It's more a lot more communal. Oh, yeah. Anyone who's ever watched any kind of competitive sport, whether like live or televised, probably can relate to that sense of camaraderie that really goes along with cheering for one team to beat another team. It's just something like really hardwired into our psychology. Hmm. I, now, I'm not a sports fan much at all, but anytime I ever went to a college football game or a soccer game with my dad, I would scream myself, horse, either <laughs> cheering for the team that my dad was supporting or yelling at the referee. And often I didn't even understand what call the referee made, how it impacted the game. But there's that energy that surrounds you about that's not the right thing. Referee, you blind. And I think most of us can can relate in some level to that. There's an energy that happens when you're doing this kind of thing. Right. And I think it's, I feel like it's no wonder that the foods that we eat in those moments 
both seem to accentuate, but also counterbalance those emotions that we're feeling. Think beer, think nachos, think garlic fries, hot dogs with onions and mustard. I mean, most of these are like pretty common stadium foods, right? These dishes and the component ingredients really aren't so much different from the comfort foods that we love at right. other times as well. Yeah. You know, it's back to the high fat, high sodium, dairy, saucy things, you know? So check out our comfort food episode for more information about what it is that we like to eat when we want to feel comforted. So do you you think that we've got this energy about us, especially a group energy that really yeah. we feed off of, and then those foods help to comfort us, maybe help to bring us down a little bit? Yeah, I really do. I have to admit, I'm not much of a drinker. Being a non-beer drinker, I also cannot imagine a Super Bowl Sunday without beer. It's not your moment for a martini, no. although certainly you could drink a martini. But, you know, there's probably something about the glutinous and hoppy component of a beer that feels good. Again, we're not highbrow, right? This is a drink of the people. And you're not sitting down to the dinner table. Mm -hmm. You're sitting in front of the TV, hoping you don't spill anything on your couch. It's the cheeses, the processed meats, ribs. Think about what constitutes Super Bowl food. And it's a little different all over the country, but I can't think of anyone who would say, oh man, I love me a good Caesar salad while I'm watching, <laughs> while I'm watching the game. No. Or man, that poached salmon. I'm sure that there are plenty of folks that do eat, you know, so-called highbrow foods, but it's, this is not the moment for that. We seem to have this cultural collective agreement that even if you're not watching the game that Super Bowl Sunday is about takeout, it's about getting delivery. In fact, it's encouraged. Yeah. You know, generally we tend to expect of each other, especially women, that we're making food in our homes. Mm -hmm. And this is not that day. And mm -hmm. the high rate of women who do watch the Super Bowl games, they don't have time to be running in and out to check whether the hollandaise is broken and needs to be redone. They're watching the game too. I particularly love this quote by Lynn Oliver of Food Timeline. Because I felt like she summed up the correlation between sporting events and food pretty well for me. She said, and I'm quoting, Spectators have consumed food at sporting events from ancient times forwards. What fans eat depends on the event, place, and period. From ancient Roman coliseums to modern tailgating, these meals are special. Game day feeds fuel more than bodies. So I'm going to say that part again. Game day feeds fuel more than bodies. These edible bonds cement team allegiance. First we eat, then we battle. Then we continue to eat because we're human and we're hungry. End quote. There's a lot to unpack in that. <laughs> there is a lot. Edible bonds cement team allegiance. It's the act of eating together communally, that you're sharing food. That's why we do it. Right. <laughs> That's why we eat together because it forms bonds. You're eating the same thing. You're taking the same nutrition. It's a bonding ritual. So I went down a rabbit hole, you know, big surprise. <laughs> I went down a rabbit hole with, the, with ancient Roman Colosseums, probably because I had read an article earlier this week about the archaeological excavation of food stalls surrounding Roman Colosseums. Mm. So games brought people from all over. The Roman Empire was vast. And I'm talking gladiator games. I'm talking Roman circuses. I'm talking any kind of event that drew people together and they watched some form of entertainment. Vendors in food stalls sold cheese and fritters, honeyed wine, olives and bread. 
there was an idea that you weren't going to sit there and consume a composed meal, that you were actually eating from the hand small things, right? This is exactly the same if you're in a stadium and you've got a beer in one hand and a, and a brat the other. Mm-hmm. It's things haven't changed that much. There were animal sacrifices done at these games, these ancient games, which seemingly provided meat that was extraordinarily sought after. So there's a passage I'm quoting from Around the Roman Table by Patrick Foss, which says, just as sacrificial meat from the altar was in demand, the meat from circus sacrifices fetched a good price because it was meat from a holy sacrifice because it was game, often exotic, that the Roman enjoyed, because it was supposed to contain substances that fortified them, and because it was scarce. There was nowhere near enough to go around the tens of thousands of greedy spectators. That is so interesting, because that kind of goes back to our curry episode when we talked about that these foods would imbue those qualities. Eating meat you gained this sort of sense of virility, of strength, of perseverance. That really captured my imagination, both in the Curry episode and also what we're talking about here. I'm pretty sure that what he meant was that fortified the people through hours of watching the games, right? Because it was, these were multi-day affairs. But I almost feel like there's sort of bringing forth a second belief and I think this is what we're talking about, that eating this meat and this holy meat that's been Mm -hmm. sanctified that you were contributing to the success of your champion. Right, right. Even though you weren't participating in the game yourself, that you were consuming something that was going to bring... Luck. Luck, exactly. That idea of eating our luck goes back to what we were talking about in our New Year's Day and New Year's Eve episode. There's no small number of people who have a particular tradition relating to gaming events, especially Super Bowl Sunday, right? Certain pair of lucky socks or... You wear your team's jersey as if you're lending your strength to the player whose jersey you're wearing. But these food traditions can also be as broad as like, hey, Super Bowl Sunday is when dad makes his famous chili. Right. And the fact that we create and perpetuate these rituals, to me, speaks to some kind of inherent knowledge and belief that we have about the power of food in our lives. Yeah. That we bother. The thing that strikes me about that is that we've talked so much about food traditions and when there may be one specific dish that you prepare only at this time. And once you said that, I was like, that's so true. Little Smokies. We never had Little Smokies (laughs) outside of Super Bowl. We ritualize food consistently, whether it's Super Bowl Sunday or it's a birthday or it's Christmas or St. Patrick's Day. I mean, think of the ritualization of corned beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day. That's a meal that could be eaten any time of the year. And yet most of us in the United States only eat it on St. Patrick's Day as if there was a purpose for it, right? But I'm kind of digressing. So of course, these days gone are the exotic sacrificial animals. And instead, instead we eat buffalo chicken wings. (laughs) I decided I wanted to look into the history of buffalo chicken wings to my surprise, actually, because I think of it as like the quintessential Super Bowl food. Buffalo chicken wings predate the Super Bowl by about four years. So remember, the first game is in 1967. Now, there are a few origin stories for the dish. Most of them are pretty much attributed to the Anchor Bar in Buffalo, New York, owned by the Bellissimo family in 1964. At this time, chicken wings were not considered good food. They're mostly fat, almost no meat. Mm -hmm. So as I said, there are a couple different versions of how the Bellissimo family 
originated the buffalo chicken wing, but the one that I like the best, and probably because it ties in so neatly with my theory about Lent, was told by Dominic Bellissimo, the son of the owners, Frank and Teresa Bellissimo. So he told this story to the New York Times in 1980 that his parents wanted to offer their regular, mostly Catholic patrons something to eat after midnight on Fridays when they'd be able to eat meat again. There's other versions of this where Dominic came home with some friends and his mom whipped up this delicious snack and everyone loved it, so they added it to their menu. There's another story that the bar mistakenly got an order of chicken wings instead of other things needed to make their spaghetti sauce. And so Frank asked Teresa to figure out something to do with them so they didn't go to waste. I don't know. I just know they basically made culinary history here. In 1977, the city of Buffalo declared July 29th to be Chicken Wing Day. <laughs> Buffalo chicken wings continued to become popular across the U.S. Two restaurant franchises were effectively born from the popularity of Buffalo chicken wings. Do you have any guesses to which two those are? The Wing Dome? Is that a... No. No? No. That's no. a fair guess, though. <laughs> I'm totally giving you credit for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think what... Wild... What is it called? Oh, you're, you're totally on track. Buffalo Wild Wings. Buffalo Wild Wings. In 1982, followed by Hooters in 1983. And then after four Super Bowl appearances by the Buffalo Bills, Domino's Pizza Chain added Buffalo chicken wings to their national menu in 1994, and then Pizza Hut followed suit the following year. And so thus, it all returns to the Super Bowl. They are practically like the official food of the Super Bowl. I mean, think of the phenomenon of the fact that this team, the Buffalo Bills, which truly have nothing to do with Buffalo chicken wings, right? They're just both from Buffalo. Think of the zeitgeist behind that, right? So as of our recording, the teams playing in the 55th Super Bowl have not yet been determined by ritual combat, but the showdown will take place at the Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida with Tampa's fabulous community of Cuban expatriates. I think that a great Super Bowl spread this year would be incomplete without some Cubano sandwiches, mm. fried plantains, but it'll definitely be a different Super Bowl this year. Please be safe, friends. Yes, indeed. We want everybody to stay healthy and safe so, and enjoy many, many, more, many Super more, Bowls Super Bowls. Many more Super Bowls in the future. Yes. At this point, I'm starving. I'm going to go make myself something to eat and enjoy my food immensely. I'm going to be like, yay, team food. That's who I'm rooting for. All right. I'm going to have to say I'm team food as well. But can I tell you what we're going to be talking about? <laughs> so, this is sensual. Please tell me what is so sensual. We're going to be talking about aphrodisiac foods mm. in honor of Valentine's Day. How to tune in to see what we recommend for the love in your life. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. 
make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.